Good morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, I'm Colton. I'm our youth pastor here, and uh, I'm privileged to get to share the word today. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you, uh, God, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, God, and, and that your love is devoted, it is enduring. And God, our praise will ever be on your lips. And so today, is, I just pray that as I speak, Lord, that your words would, would speak, that your spirit would move in our hearts today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Kephas Apangi was the pastor of the Redeemed Church in Uganda, which became the target of Idi Amin's persecution in 1973. He and his family actually escaped from there by the narrowest of margins, and they fled to Kenya, then to Europe, then to America, where he completed a seminary degree, and he became the director of, the, of an, a thing called the Africa Foundation, an organization that was pledged to help Ugandan refugees fleeing from Amin's terrorist regime. And in his book, A Distant Grief, he recounts what happened to his prayer life when he came to the safeties of the Western world. Uh, he writes this. It was then, in my second year, that I noticed the change that had come into my life. In Uganda, Panina and I read the Bible for hope and life. We read to hear God's promises, to hear his commands and obey them. There had been no time for argument and no time for religious discrepancies or doubts. Now, in the security of a new life and with the reality of death fading from mind, I found myself reading scripture to analyze texts and speculate about meaning. I came to enjoy abstract theological discussions with my fellow students, and while these discussions were intellectually refreshing, it wasn't long before our fellowship revolved around ideas rather than the work of God in our lives. It was not the blood of Jesus Christ that gave us unity, but our agreement on doctrinal issues. We came together not for confession and forgiveness, but for debate. The biggest change came in my prayer life, he says. In Uganda, I had prayed with a deep sense of urgency. I refused to leave my knees until I was certain I'd been in the presence of the resurrected Christ. It was not just the gift I needed. I needed to see the giver. I needed to know that the God of orphans and widows, the God of the helpless, heard my prayers. Now, after a year in Philadelphia, the urgency was gone. When I prayed publicly, I was more concerned to be theologically correct than to be in God's presence. Even in private, my prayers were no longer the helpless cries of a child. They were spiritual tranquilizers, thoughts that made no contact with anything outside themselves. More and more, I found myself coming to God with vague requests for gifts I did not expect. God himself had become a distant figure. He had become the subject of debate, an abstract category. I no longer prayed to him as a living father, but as an impersonal being who did not mind my inattention and unbelief. So as we talk about some of the essential ideals of being God's people in the world, I recognize that we live in relative safety, and so often we think of God in the abstract theological or as a distant figure, and sometimes we leave the implications of God's love to us, to us and for us in the abstract. And much of that comes from allowing the comforts, leisures, the opportunities available to us here in Kamloops, BC to get in the way of our relationship with God. You know, we can get frustrated with God and with our lack of closeness to him. 
the seeming distance he has from us, and the less and less we look like his son Jesus, even if we know lots about him, we live in a way that we feel sometimes is actually pretty disconnected from God's work. And the truth is, if we're living disconnected from God, living a life but without love, our ministry adds up to a sum total of zero. And so I thought it important before we we get into being like Christ, being and reflecting the character of God in the world, first that we need to talk about how we could ever expect to reflect the character of God. We need to spend time with Him. We need to be with Him. Artists, when they draw a picture, they have a person or a landscape in front of them that they're drawing. It's in front of them, always before them. Hockey players, to get better at shooting, you need to be on the ice with an actual stick and an actual puck. A ball hockey ball just isn't the same thing. We need the real thing. And if we're going to reflect God's character, we need more than just a pastor preaching on Sunday morning and more than just a good theological book. We need to spend time with the real God. The real center of the universe, on our knees before him, praying and reading and listening to his word. So even as we speak of using our spiritual gifts and living out our purpose, we need to know that we don't move from the ABCs of Christian life onto newer and greater and better things. We we never move from the beauty of being a child before God. Simpanji, he was moving from a personal love of God, to merely intellectual thinking. You know, study is important, but it can't replace real communion with God and others, with confession and forgiveness, as he said. What could be better than to really have a restored relationship with our Creator who loves us? You know, through grace, we have access to the Heavenly Father. We aren't saved for the gifts, but for the giver. The gospel is the A to Z of life. We don't move past God and act as though we believe the gospel now to, have, uh, to receive in our lives good things like knowledge and riches and money and pleasure. The best gift we get is God. We can live with him. And so as we talk about our purpose and how we play our part, I want to issue a word of caution but encouragement that one of my beloved professors always drove into us. He said this, Be concerned first by the depth of your ministry, your relationship with God, not the breadth of your ministry. Let God worry about the breadth. Grow deep in love with him. The primary way we do this is through spending time with him, learning from him. And we do that through prayer and reading his word. But I want to focus today on prayer. See, so often we fail to pray. Prayer is something that takes time, intentionality, and discipline And the time we give it kind of shows how important it is. It shows its true measure of importance to us. Martin Luther, a father of the Protestant Reformation, he said that when he was busy, it meant he needed to pray more. Work, work from early till late, he said. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. So the demands of the day might have dictated his time in prayer, but not the way that it often does for us. Prayer was most important. Because God was most important. Jesus himself, sorry, he spent full nights in prayer. He rose before the sun in order to pray. And often when major stuff was going on in his life, he withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We want to be connected to the source of life. An old hymn said something along these lines. 
When you, meaning God, visit the heart, then truth begins to shine. Earthly vanities depart, and what is kindled is love divine. Now, I think we begin to see that as we spend time with God in prayer and in his word. The things that distract us, earthly vanities, they're sometimes good things, right? But they're put in their proper place in terms of our affections. We love what God loves more, and God kindles in us his love. We begin to have our affections stirred up. We begin to love the things that God loves, to care for the things that God cares for, and to hold loosely those things that won't last or won't fulfill us. So when we spend time with God, he can stir up his passions inside of us. When we walk and we talk with God, God's love and power grows in us, and people people will feel its influence and be touched by the warmth of his love through us. So God's heart begins to warm our heart toward the right things. The Bible talks about how when we become Christians, we become united with Christ. And Jesus uses the metaphor of a branch that is connected to the vine. He said, we pray in order that the life of Christ, the vine, might more and more appear in us. See, we need time with God. Much more than an hour on Sunday mornings, we need it every day. To be in prayer, to be drinking deeply from God's word where God has chosen to reveal himself. And so as we dive into our main text for today, 1 Corinthians 13, and we consider what kind of way of living reflects the character of God, my first challenge to you is, this. What stands in the way of you taking time to be with God? How could you make more time to be present, to sit before God and open up his word and let it speak to you? Let it penetrate your heart and move and stir things up in you. See, if you're a disciple, you spend time following and being with your master and his character will shape yours. Now, Jesus says that what happens when, when we spend time with him, the giveaway character trait of his followers is love. Jesus said it is by our love for one another that people will know we are his disciples. See, after Jesus talked about being the vine and about us being the branches, he spoke about love. When we're connected to him, we love. It, it's what's going to flow out of a relationship, a connection to him as the vine. He says this, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. See, love begins and flows from God. And so what kind of love is he talking about? The word Jesus used for love was agape. The New Testament writers made much of this Greek word. Often in the Greek world, it was just a substitute for eros, so sexual, or phileo, brotherly love. If it had any nuance, it was love for the sake of the object of our love. See, with the gospel writers and Jesus, he tapped into this word, showing that it tells us of God's undeserved love for sinners. Totally undeserved. Now, in Matthew 5, Jesus actually uses this very word in relation to how we are to treat our enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he said. You know, that's absolutely impossible for our hearts of stone. It can only come from God transforming our hearts. And this is the love that is given to us from God. It never begins with us. God enables agape love in us. And this love will naturally overflow from being connected to the vine, spending time with the Father. It won't happen if we're not connected to the source of love. 
We'll be serving ungrateful people or trying to use our gifts for our own sake. And without love, our ministry will fall flat. It'll burn us out, make us grumpy, and ultimately it'll take whatever wind or hot air we have out of our sails. Our ministry will equal a sum total of zero. So let's hear how the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthians. If you want to turn with me to your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13, 1-8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. Does not, it is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is love. This is our starting place in reflecting the character of God. This is how people will know that we belong to Jesus. See, this is what overflows from our prayer life. Possessing one of the spiritual gifts is not the sign of the Spirit. Uh, Theologian Gordon Fee says, Christian love is. The gifts are futile when there's no love. Everything becomes about ourselves. You know, we don't want to be resounding gongs. That would be a gong show. Sorry, that was bad. (laughs) Having all knowledge about God just can't replace having the love of God. And Paul is speaking to people in a city and a church group where there is this great desire to be great, where they are getting all excited about these great spiritual gifts and Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians that before great spiritual gifts and stuff start to run the show, you need to know who runs the show. And you need to know that the show runs through love. Love is the most excellent way. Gordon Fee points out that this is the sine qua non for Christians. It is the indispensable, essential for a follower or a reflector of the character of Christ. And so let's look at what Paul says about love. We're going to take a look at two texts. Romans 12, 9 to 21, and 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to have them up on the screen. And we're going to be kind of playing with uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message, the NIV, and some of my own thoughts. So, so let's dive into this word. Let's start with 1 Corinthians. Love never gives up. It is patient. Are we patient with others, those, even those who annoy us? Love is kind. Peterson says, love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. It doesn't envy. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a big head. It's not proud. Love doesn't force itself on others. It isn't me first, not self-seeking. Love doesn't fly off the handle. It isn't easily angered. And love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Peterson writes, It doesn't revel when others grovel. You know, when someone else is down and out, and that includes enemies, as Jesus said, it isn't excited and doesn't laugh at them. But love takes pleasure in what is true. Love always protects. It steps in the gaps to protect loved ones. It always trusts, especially God. Always hopes. It believes the best. And always perseveres. It keeps going and never looks back. 
And it doesn't just run out. There's no, I've had it, with love. This text tells us that love is an utterly selfless, self-denying kind of love. And so Romans 12 gives us a few more helpful points that cause us to look at how love acts. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. The word sincere or genuine means that we love and speak from a place that is not two-faced. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Never be lacking in zeal. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled in a flame. Be alert servants of Jesus. Cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice, or rather as Peterson puts it, be inventive in hospitality. Creatively love on others. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Wish them well, C.H. Dodd says, and turn that wish into a prayer. Pray for them regularly. Laugh with your happy friends. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with, quote-unquote, nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't hit back. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, don't ruffle people up and create arguments. Don't cause quarrels or arguments or stir up discord, which Paul says in Galatians is actually a work of the flesh, not of the spirit. That's what happens when we are living for ourselves. You can't control what others do, but you can control your responses. So respond with love. Don't insist on getting even. God says that he'll take care of it. If you see your enemy hungry, go buy them lunch. Or if they're thirsty, get them a drink. You know, get them Tim's. Your generosity might surprise them with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Do you hear that? That's doing good to those who mistreat or hate you. Blessing those who persecute you, as Jesus said. And here's a question. Are you willing to go and do something good for someone who either really doesn't like you or you really don't like? Yes or no? Take a moment. Tell God, is it yes or no? Are you willing to do something good for them? So one Christian tells a story that brought him to Jesus. Uh, he was, this guy was a secret police officer for the USSR, and a Christian who was sentenced to death, he, he got to overhear his last conversation with his wife. And, and, and the believer said this, You must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do, and my last request of you is to love them, too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. You know, that secret police who was there and heard him say that to his wife, his life was changed, and, and he actually came to know Jesus. He knew the love of God. He gave his life to God. And later, he went to prison, too, for sharing that, for sharing that same kind of love. See, love isn't something abstract, right? Love is not an idea for Paul, not even a motivating factor for behavior. It totally influences and takes over our behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of that is not love at all. Without love, a life given to love, all of our life and work in ministry adds up to zero. So, so are you going to act on this? There's so much great application of love in the Bible. There's way more ways to live and reflect God's character than just what we've brought up today. But if you've heard that, and you read those things, and you think, wow, that's a really hard and costly love, you're right. Well, how in the world do you live that kind of love out, Colton? That's utterly selfless. Well, how do you live with self-denial in an age of self-gratification? How do we do that? 
First, recognize that you are loved. Evelyn Underhill, whose writings I don't always agree with, says that there are three longings people have. The longing for the perfect home, the longing for the perfect lover, and the longing for purity or personal perfection. You know, it's easy to have these longings and to want perfect knowledge and to want love in all its senses and to want comfort and a home and a place to belong and stay and to try and find fulfillment for them. You know, we might get a taste, but these things don't always last and often it puts the emphasis on ourselves and the gifts and not the giver, not God. The only way to find lasting fulfillment for all of those longings is in Christ Jesus. He is the source. He is the only way to know the Father's love, and it's by his love and grace that we're saved. You know, this world as it is, it won't deliver. G.K. Chesterton said that when he became a Christian, he realized that his feeling of being homesick at home kind of made sense because these things weren't going to be fulfilled in the things of the world. He needed to look to God in whose presence we find the perfect home, in whose eyes we find perfect love that casts out fear, and only through whose love we are made pure, not because we achieved anything, but because God loved us freely. He is the giver and the source of agape love. If we were just left to ourselves, we would never be able to love the way that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans 12. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came down and died. He took the punishment for our wrongdoings that we deserved on himself. That's not fair. He denied himself. He denied his rights. You know, those things we sometimes hold on to when we're mad at people. And he died on the cross for our sins, his enemies. Henry Nouwen says this, if you know that you're beloved of God, You can live with an enormous amount of success and an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity because your identity is that you are the beloved. You're loved. And as you spend time with God, you soak up that love like a sponge. But God doesn't just let you sit there and become a moldy sponge. He squeezes you out in community, squeezes you out so you can share that love with others. And sometimes... And if we're being honest, being squeezed doesn't always feel all that good. But what oozes out when you're being squeezed is is character. And that should be the same thing that oozes out of us when we aren't being squeezed. Love. See, love's not always easy. And and sometimes we don't always have the affection and the motivated feeling to actually love people. You know, it takes discipline to love. And disciples are disciplined. And what I'm referring to is self-discipline. Training for righteousness, making a choice to live the right way in line with my commitments, even when I'm totally not feeling it. Self-discipline is a mark of a mature believer, which we find comes up in a list of, of things from Titus 1.8. Because guess what? There are going to be days when you aren't always going to be motivated to keep your prayer time with God. There will be a day you'll wake up and you know, you'll be so busy and you'll think, I'll just let this one go. And that day turns into two, and two days turns into four, and next thing you know, you've gone days without spending time with your creator and savior, loving God, who so wants to speak with you. You know, I've struggled with that, even recently. And it can happen with love, too. I'll think, I'll do that nice thing for that person someday. 
someday when it's uh, more convenient for me and when I feel more motivated to do it. The hockey game is on tonight, and I'd rather watch the Canucks lose to the Hurricanes or to the Avalanche next week. My friend in need can wait. But what does it mean, though? What does it take to make the most of every opportunity, as Ephesians 5.16 puts it? It takes more than motivation. It takes discipline. A popular author and former Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, I think he put it right. He says this, Discipline beats motivation every time. Motivation is fickle. If you rely on feeling motivated to do something, that feeling comes and goes. It's not reliable. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-26 calls the Christian life a race. He says, runners train in a way as to achieve the prize. And so Paul says, run like that. Train for godliness. That's all over the New Testament. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, strict training, he says. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. When a runner trains for a race, like, and they want to win, they don't skip a run because they aren't feeling it. They're disciplined. They get out there and they do what they know is needed because they've made a decision and a commitment and they know it's important and that it matters when the going gets tough. They're not thinking just about right now. They're thinking about the race. They deny the cravings and the temptations to just let things go. They need to be ready to race. And guess what? We're in a race right now. Romans 12.10, which we already read, it tells us to run hard. Never be lacking in zeal. It says, don't be lazy or lacking in zeal. You are called to a purpose that is running towards Christ Jesus. This is an awesome race to be in. Let's run hard. The comforts of our chairs and beds, you know, and a lot of things in our world call us towards self-gratification rather than self-denial. But that won't build up the body of Christ. We are called to love and love hard. And I like what John Piper says here. He says, we will not love each other the way Christ loved us until we learn to buffet the body the way he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. His body cried out, no, I will not be crucified. And Jesus wrestled with his body to the point that blood dropped from his face. And he made his body a servant of love. Do we want to be servants of love? Now, we know that we're saved by God's grace alone, right? So we, don't, we know that this isn't a work, but it is a right response to God's grace in our own lives. Loving, really having agape love and having this kind of discipline that is, it's really impossible without having a heart that's been transformed by Christ, that is beholding daily the wonderful relationship with God that Christ's blood purchased for you, a sinner, to be able to enter into a relationship with the holy and beautiful God of love. And you'll need discipline to take time to do what you know is right even when you don't want to, you don't feel like it. And you'll find more fuel for that discipline and more love for that hard-to-love person as you seek and spend time with your Lord and Savior. Not an abstract figure with an abstract concept of love, but with your loving Heavenly Father. And ministry done for Him in love never equals zero in God's kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. And thank you for your words of encouragement and conviction from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 and in Romans. God, help us to embody the very love that you pour into us.
Help us to live with agape love, to love others, and to do it even when we don't feel like, feel like it. Help us to love our enemies, God. Work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit to live this out. We pray these things in your name. Amen.